What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And this episode is brought to you by everyone who supports this podcast. There are people on Patreon. There are people at the Bestseller Academy. And there are the wonderful listeners that are listening to the show right now. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts. The show simply couldn't happen without your help. Mr. D, how are you today, sir? I'm good. You know, it was a bit of a rush this morning, Mark, because I had to squeeze in my 200 words before yeah, the podcast got man. up, got good the man. kids to the bus, got my 200 words in, and here we are. And uh, and uh, it was a good a good morning, a good morning. Do you know what I love about doing 200 words first thing is it's a real sense of satisfaction of knowing that the rest of the day now can go completely pear-shaped, including this podcast, but <laughs> got my 200 words banked. So uh, have you been writing this this week or are you in editing phases? What, what are you up no, to? No, no, I'm, I'm, sort of, uh, I'm just at the tipping point where I slide down into the third act of the book that I'm working on. So I'm writing every day. I'm banking my words every day. I wrote later than usual today because I was up at 5 a.m. this morning because I had to drive my son into London because he's filming something and the call was so early that uh, there weren't any trains. So I had to drive him into Blimmin' Wandsworth this morning to do his thing. Uh, and then I got home and then I had to do... A, I've had... This is my third recording today. So I'm doing things for like London Book Fair and stuff like that pre-records. So uh, I managed to squeeze in between sort of 11 and noon uh, a good 560 words or something. So um, yeah, a bit frazzled today. <laughs> Listeners. And we're gonna, oh. I'll tell you what, there's definitely something called Zoom fatigue, isn't there? But we're going to be hearing an incredible interview later with uh, the amazing Nadine Matheson, who also manages to squeeze in her words around an incredibly busy job. Yeah. And uh, so this episode is dedicated to everyone out in the world who says that they are too busy to write. <laughs> when, and my big question to everyone out there that, that, that lives by that rule is, when are you ever going to be less busy? <laughs> like when? When's it ever going to happen? You know, I listen to my parents talk about retirement and they always say these words. I've, I've never, we've never been busier. We don't know how we manage to squeeze work in. So 200 words a day it is, it is the saviour of, of that. It's, we can get rid of those excuses because if you, if you write 200 words a day, you write a book in a year. Um, the average book published is around 70,000 words and 200 words a day will get you 72,000-ish words a year. And it takes literally 10 to 15 minutes. And that's, that's the bit that um, amazes me is how those words kind of continue to build and build on each other. But for anyone listening who's never done this before, the secret is, is that 200 words never actually is 200 words. I never write really 200 words. I'll either write 250. I wrote 1,040 the other day, 560 yesterday. And you stand back, don't you? You think, blimey. What, what do you think you average mark on a day when you sit down to aim for 200? Do you typically go over by quite a lot? I'm, I'm, I guess I'm averaging about 1,000 words a day. Uh, on on project one and then there's usually project two but then i'm full-time so i have a big advantage i know there are a lot of people there's a there's a couple of people in in the bxp group on um on facebook who have very young children and i i but they're still writing they're exhausted but they're still right because that that 200 words a day is as you say 15 20 minutes handwritten scribbled down whatever you know it, it can be done i'm not going to pretend it's easy for a moment if you've got a small child or you've got you know a member of the family is ill or or, or other troubles we uh but it, it it can be done don't the, the thing is when you hear people saying oh i do a thousand words a day two thousand words a day three thousand you feel you have to keep up and there is that pressure and we talked to nadine about 
NaNoWriMo and things like that. And NaNoWriMo is, you know, very intense and you kind of think, oh, I'll do it all in a month, but it, it's really stressful. And I think if you can make that 200 part of your day, find that because it is as we've said you know it's the equivalent of however you know a, a few emails it's the equivalent emails, of yeah. you know uh so it it can be done and if you're just getting words down if you're just right as you know as we said with dean wesley smith our guest a few weeks ago and we'll talk about some of the reaction we had to that in social media at the end of the show which is fun <laughs> um you know if you're just writing in the dark if you're just getting words down if you're you know if you've got pen and a notebook not the laptop. The laptop can be really intimidating because you've got that winking cursor. Or if you've got a phone, you've got the notes app on your phone. You can get those words down a lot more quickly than you think. And it's that thing. I was doing an interview this morning for London Book Fair and there was a, an author, debut author on there. And he was saying that thing for him is writing daily. It's that, it's that momentum. It's that momentum of writing a little bit every day. And just this week, um, I finished the fourth and final short story in what is now known as the Miss Charlotte Quartet, which is a, a spin-off mm. series that uh, I started as a writing exercise to get me out of a funk during the first lock. First lockdown happened. Like a lot of people, I was just completely bewildered by it. it took the wind out of my sails. And I had a second book to deliver. I was under contract. I, I, th I figured, oh, God, I've got to write a book over the next few months. But I just... It was. It just seemed like, a, you know, how am I going to do this with all this weird stuff going on? So I thought, you know what, I'm going to write some short stories set in the same world, just with, you know, I'll have a play and see how it goes. I'll just do 200 words a day. And that's how it's on that sofa there with my feet up and a notepad. Just I thought, OK. And now it's over 25,000 words, short story, four short stories, all free. If you sign up to my newsletter, folks, go to witchesofwoodville.com. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's and it's now an amazing thing. I've done audiobook versions and, and, and what have you. So, I, you know, it's um, it's it's kind of blown my mind a little bit. Uh, and a big thank you, I must say, to Julian Barr, my editor, and Andy Bowden, who did the cover art. They've just been absolutely amazing. And anyone who's downloaded a copy so far. But all of that, just came out of me thinking, okay, let's just write something. So you never yeah. know where it's going to end up. Write something, anything. And the most important thing, first and foremost, is get the words down, no matter how good or bad you think they are, because they can always be improved. But a blank page can't be improved. <laughs> no, <laughs> the covers, absolutely. by the way, of your, of your books, I've noticed you popping them up on the, the group there, look absolutely fantastic, yeah. really great. Yeah. Um, another, another thing to announce, which I'm really excited about, is um, June in the Bestseller Academy. Well, I should also say, just to finish off that last segment, is if you want to join the 200-word challenge, it is 200wordchallenge.com. Um, if you're doing it, please... Um, tweet about it tell us how it's affecting your writing how it's helped you have you finished a book using it we want to know about that um, we're going to start uh, promoting the books that have been completed in the 200 word challenge and if you're doing it and you know someone else that might benefit from it, benefit from it tell them about it please get them involved and one of the reasons why that's important is the other thing i was about to mention which is june is accountability month in the bestseller academy the academy is our um, premium program for people who are looking to um, join an incredibly inspiring group of people and need accountability to get that book finished. And we're going to be doing accountability partnerships, which is a new thing we're introducing into the Academy, which I'm super excited about because weirdly enough, the 200 word challenge started as an experiment that I did uh, a year and a half ago. And we actually started with accountability partners. And the idea is, is that you basically um, would find a partner and uh, you would have to text or message them each day, your word count. Um, I'm going to go deeper into that in July and August, tell, tell people on the podcast what we discovered through that. But some of the statistics we found from the original trial were mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And I think this is possibly the missing piece. So if you're part of the Academy, that's something to look out for and be excited about. Or if you're looking for accountability, especially an accountability partner, then consider joining the Bestseller Academy. We're opening the doors and um, the new entrance, if you like, for the Academy will be starting on the 1st of July. So that's the deadline, folks. If you want to sign up to the Academy, you need to get over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com um, before the end of June. That is now the deadline. So the doors will be closing then. Um, Mark, let's dive into our interview because this this is brilliant. Um, tell, us about, tell us about Nadine, who just is such an inspiring character. 
Yes, Nadine Matheson was born and lives in London and is a criminal solicitor. Full-time job, like you say, that's not a part-time job. That's not something, you know, that, that you can just wander in and out of. That is a, that is a career. Uh, in 2016, she won the City University Crime Writing Competition and completed an MA at City University of London. And her crime novel, The Jigsaw Man, was published by HQ HarperCollins in February 2021, which is when we recorded this. So this is, listeners, we have a bit of a backlog of interviews, so, you know. But I'm glad we've taken this long for this one to, to go live for reasons... I will discuss after the interview. Um, but we talk about launching in lockdown, because I did that too. We talk about publisher auctions, diversity, writing about where you live, uh, NaNoWriMo, self-publishing her first book and the lessons she learned from that, managing the work-writing balance. And I must say, I didn't prompt her to say any of this. She completely said, you'll listen to this and think, this sounds familiar. But this is complete. This is completely Nadine. And we talk about writing every day. Oh, and just a word of warning. I do read out a particularly gruesome bit of her book. So if that's blood and guts is not your thing, just skip forward. It's only a minute. Skip forward a minute and then everything will be back to normal. But you do not want to miss out on the rest of this. Brilliant stuff. So let's have a listen to Mark chatting to the wonderful and delightful Nadine Matheson. Nadine Matheson, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? Mark, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me, firstly. <laughs> oh, we're very, very excited. We're here to talk about your crime novel, The Jigsaw Man, uh, and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but first of all, uh, we're recording this, it's February now. Uh, so people listen to this. It's probably there's probably sun shining, what have you, but we're in we're in the middle of lockdown. My book came out a week ago. Your book is coming out this week. We're launching books in the mid when all the bookshops are closed, which is well, everything's closed. <laughs> How's how is it launching a, a book like this in, in lockdown? What's what's your experience so far? It's so strange because I thought when we first went into lockdown last year, I thought by the time we came round to my launch date on the 18th, I thought it'd be fine. We'll all yeah. be out. <laughs> <laughs> The government decided to put us back into lockdown. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's not going to be, I'm not going to have a little party and fairy cakes and champagne by the river. I'm going to be at home in my front room. <laughs> where it's going to be. <laughs> so, it, and because this is like the one that's been traditionally published, I think you have this um, idea of how publishing launch parties should be. And when yeah. you realise it's actually going to take place in your front room, <laughs> on Zoom. <laughs> but I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to make exactly. the most of it. At least, at least you can do it in your gym jams. That's an option. You know, you can be exactly. comfy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about The Jigsaw Man. Tell us about The Jigsaw Man because it's it's such a fun... Ri- Listeners, if you love Pacey Thrills, you are in for such a treat with this. Thank you so much. Well, The Jigsaw Man is... Um, well, it's a crime thriller and it's set in South East London. And it starts when my inspector, Detective Inspector Angelica Henley, she's basically back at work. Um, she'd been signed off for basically a bit of stress. And she has to start a new investigation when body parts are found washed up on the banks of the River Thames. And when she gets to the banks of the River Thames, not only does she find the river um, the body parts, she also has a new partner and she's not too keen on having a new partner. And um, his name's Selim Rimuta. And then when she gets to the river, she discovers that it matches the MO of a killer called a jigsaw killer. But he's currently serving a life sentence in prison. And so she quickly realises that she's dealing with a copycat. And at some point in the book, she has to ask the jigsaw killer, who's Olivier, um, for help. And he doesn't take too kindly to knowing there's a copycat out there. And so he escapes. (laughs) So Henley finds herself pursuing not just one killer, but two killers. It's fantastic. Brilliant. Now, there are going to be people out there when they you're going to have two audiences out there when they hear the words body parts, right? There are there are some who are going to go, oh god, oh no, and there are some who are going to go, oh, tell me more. So we, uh, you're you're obviously one of those readers. You like a bit of uh, a, a bit of um, dismemberment. I like a little bit of dismemberment, and I think if you're writing a police procedural and you're involving serial killers, I think you should expect a, a body part or two. So. <laughs> But for me also, I'm, I remember when I was writing the book, I remember thinking at some point, oh, I don't want it to be gratuitous at all. I don't want it to be just just blood and gore continuously. But obviously, I, I, I was probably being a bit pretentious about it. And I got to a point and I was like, no, you do need a bit of that. You do need to give the audience what they want. 
So yeah, I like a little bit of blood and gore. <laughs> can I can I read a bit out? Can I read a bit out from chapter one? Yeah, you right. can. Oh my god, yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm going to read this out. This this right here we go. The head had been cut off just above the Adam's apple. Small hunks of bone were embedded in the ridged windpipe that jutted out among the shredded muscle and clotted blood. Yellowing fat and connective tissue had the look of raw, jointed chicken that had been left out in the air for too long. Henley stood up and breathed in deeply. The wind carried the briny, rotten scent of the river. And you seem like such a nice person. <laughs> Everyone says that. Everyone's like, you seem like such a nice person. Then you, it's like, how can you write such gruesome things? And the funny thing is, I never really thought they were gruesome when I was writing them. I thought this isn't gruesome enough. This is just quite tame. And it's only now I'm getting the feedback from the readers and I'm having readers tell me the book kept them up at night. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm like, that's really good. But I didn't think it was going to do that. But it has. So that That is the best review you can possibly have for a book like this. That They're turning the pages, they're staying up at night, and they're having night. That's job done, frankly, isn't it? That is job done. That's what I want. Keep <laughs> them up at night. <laughs> the really, really exciting thing about this is there was a six-publisher auction. And we love hearing about this kind of book because this is the sort of thing that, you know, we can only dream of uh, as authors. So what was that? Were people phoning you up and saying they've gone to this and they've said this? And what was the experience like for you? It was, I was saying to a friend the other day, I didn't realise I was in an auction until my agent said we're in an auction. Because <laughs> I think, because um, it happened really quickly when I signed with, I signed with my agent, well, two years ago um, now, and I signed with my agent on my birthday which is 29th of January for future reference. And then about <laughs> two weeks after that, two weeks after that, um, they sent the book off, sent the manuscript off to um, editors. And I think three days after he sent it off, we got our first offer, which was on a Friday. And then the Monday we got our second offer. And the offers I was kind of, I, was, I was, just wasn't expecting it. And then I think it was the Tuesday, he goes, we're in an auction. I'm like, are we? He goes, yeah, we're in an auction. And we had, I think initially it started off at five, then it went up to six. And then every day it was the, this is where we're at. And because this is, this is all completely new to me, I said, I'm a lawyer by chase. So, you know, I know how to deal with criminal cases. The publishing was completely alien to me. So all of this, I'm getting text message, right, this is the offer, this is what's happening. I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. It's just the stuff we read about, you know, did not thinking it would ever happen to me. And I remember calling my brother at one point, and, he, and I said to him, this is what the offers are, but we're not taking it. And he said, well, why aren't we taking it? <laughs> because it was all completely mind-blowing. And then, obviously, it goes to the next stage um, of the auction, and... Yeah, it was. It's the best. It's the best feeling. It's what you dream for, dream of when you're a writer, and you and you get the deal. So being in an auction, then getting the final. This is who's won. And you're like, yay! <laughs> Someone's won the auction. And it was also nice meeting different um, publishers as well, and also going to places like Penguin. You know, these are the books you you grew up with. You know, you recognise the the sign, you recognise the Penguin, and going to their offices. All of that was like, I, I can't believe this is. I'm used to going to Belmarsh Prison and. It was a fantastic experience. It really was. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Actually, I'm really interested in your first impressions of the publishing world because it is, it, it, we were going to mention this at the end, but we, like I said, we're recording this in February and just today uh, the Publishers Association has put out a report that says um, representation of people from Black, Asian, minority ethnic groups in publishing has stalled a static 13% for the past three years. Uh, so it is a very kind of white, middle-class world. Um, how, how did you feel walking into that world? Uh, and and what, what what were your first impressions of, of publishing? In a funny sense, because um, I read the same article this morning, and in a funny sense, the legal world was a lot like that. Right. Obviously, very white, very middle class. So in a funny way, it was kind of familiar to me being in that sort of um, environment. But I was still surprised at the statistics in terms of the representation of Black Asian authors. And also 
the representation of Black and Asian author um, just within publishing world itself. You expect it to be more because maybe because I I live in London and I grew up in London and I live in a very diverse area. So there's that side of me that thought, okay, who I am and what I see and what I live with, I'm going to see that represented in the publishing world. And then you realise very quickly that it's not. But I'm hoping because of everything that's happened last year with, you know, Black Lives Matters and this very concentrated effort to increase um, representation, both in publishing in terms of... um, authors I'm hoping that the numbers change and increase I mean I'm very lucky my editor um Bampri, um she's Asian and she I think she she understands me <laughs> she understands um my my work so it's it's good having that sort of dynamic as well but I'm hoping it will I'm, I expect it to change a lot so in terms of the efforts that's been made last year and hopefully they continue to make but it's so important to see yourself represented because then I write well now I write crime and I said I've, I've read crime for since I was like 13 years old and it's only the last few years and actually writing my own crime book and I'm thinking well how many black authors are there not in America ne- necessarily but in Britain like how many black authors are there how many black authors are there writing crime and where are the black like leading characters the protagonists in the book and I don't think it should be like a concentrated effort like you need to make sure everyone's represented but it should just be normal it shouldn't be someone trying to pick up the jigsaw man and it's a shock that the detective's a black woman that should just be oh she's Angelica she's Annie she's got some issues (laughs) and she's a black woman that should not it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a shock to anybody excellent stuff now you set this in Deptford which is where you live so uh, is was that um, simply because it's easy to research because it's on your doorstep or did you want to say something about Deptford or because, or, you know, you've got, you know, Ian Rankin has Edinburgh, you know, uh, you know it's, it's like, you, uh, is that your turf now? Is that going to be where they're all set from now on? That's my turf. And I think I made, I made a deliberate, a deliberate point of setting it in Deptford. So, so I grew up here. Um, I still live here. And I've always read Mark Billingham's books from the very beginning, but he's very much north london based and there's a lot of books that when they are crime thrillers and they are set in london they're always set around north london or um in the city and i thought no we need to give south london a shout out and we need to give Deptford a shout out and because it's an area where i've grown up and i've seen how much it's changed in terms in terms of gentrification but it's like i know the seedy sides of it i know what happens on those little back corners and I live so close and I grew up by the river so I live so close to the river so I grew up when I said in um, I think in acknowledgements that I've seen bodies being pulled out of the river and you know we were always told not to play by the river growing up but we always went to play by the river growing up and you'd see dead animals and you grew up hearing stories about um I think a trunk was found once with body parts found in it yeah so you hear this is the stories I've grown up with another so, piece of the puzzle falls into and, place <laughs> <laughs> so and it, I think that was a great area and you said you've got this contrast I said also with I'm so close to Greenwich as well and it's so historically relevant so having that contrast I'm like no it it would be a sin not to use all that and have it in the book brilliant brilliant stuff let's talk about how it started for because this isn't your debut you uh wrote a book in uh published a book in 2015 called sisters which is a very different book and i believe the first draft you wrote as part of nanowrimo can you tell us about that i did it was um it was funny that whole year i'd taken redundancy so i started working so i was self-employed as a lawyer so i I had time to write and i'd entered nano well yeah you entered nanowrimo and the story came about because I said I watch really bad TV and I've always said my explanations for that because of the work I do can be so dark and serious that I need really bad reality, real housewives of TV to watch that doesn't use up my brain cells. So I must have been watching real housewives and I came up with this story. I wrote it for NaNoWriMo and I finished it. So I got my, I printed out my little certificate. I downloaded it with my discount code. Yes. And then I realised I had, yeah, I did all that. Actually, put this certificate on my walk. I've written a book. Fantastic! But Good for you. No, yeah. brilliant. You got to celebrate um, these things, you know. You have to. Every moment as a writer, no matter how small, you should you should celebrate those achievements. So I wrote the book, and then I thought, well, I've got these. I had fifty thousand words, so um, 
I worked on it. And it was just funny, at the same time, a friend of mine who's a barrister, he left the profession to write full time. So he writes sci-fi and he was um, starting on the self-publishing journey. So we were kind of doing it together. And I ended up writing a short sci-fi story for his anthology um, that he published. So, so we started with self, and I thought, okay, I might as well publish it myself. You know, it, and it was it was at the time where self-publishing was blowing up. So I think you had um, the whole story of Andy Weir and The Martian, you know, and how that was self-published in the beginning. So you had all of that happening. So I wrote the book and then I did all the research. I found the editor, found the proofreaders, found the the, um, the cover artist. And all of that is so much work, so much yeah. work. But I did all that. And then um, I got, oh God, I got someone to typeset it for me. I found all that. And then pull it on Amazon and actually printed out the physical copies. And I was like, oh my God, I've actually got a book. And <laughs> yeah, the reviews were good. <laughs> yeah, I had good reviews. You know, obviously my mum bought it. My mum <laughs> did think, <laughs> I had to tell my mum the book wasn't about her because she's one of four sisters, well, five sisters. So I had to tell her, no, it's not about you and my aunts. Because <laughs> you weren't in a girl band the last time I checked. So, <laughs> <laughs> what so that, that was what, my first book. What were the biggest lessons you learned from that? You have to do your research um, from self-publishing. It's not easy. It seems easy to just write your book and just press send on CreateSpace, but it's not. The amount of time and effort it will take a traditional publisher to find the right editor, the right cover artist, you need to put that amount of work into it. You need to take it just as seriously as whatever your day job is. Because I don't know if it's my just um, perception of it. I found that the reviewers of self-published books, they can be probably a lot harsher than a mm. book that's traditionally published. So if yeah. you have got a spelling mistake in it, they're going to make sure that they tell you. Yeah. They're yeah. spelling mistakes. So yeah. there's a definite my, bias there. Yeah. 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 So my bias is like, don't just take it as, you know, it's a, it could be a hobby, but you need to put that effort of professionalism in it. And if you pay cheaply for a cover artist or for someone to, proofread your book like you can find someone to do it for a fiver if you want them to but expect the level of professionalism you're going to get for paying a fiver as opposed to actually putting the money in very very true very true now you mentioned the day job there uh you're uh am i right you're a criminal solicitor criminal solicitor yeah and so which i imagine that's not a part-time job. That's all-encompassing, you know. Uh, how, how are you managing? We're always fascinated where we have people who have, have jobs, particularly jobs that are, you know, really, really intense, and you're writing as well. How do you manage to balance both of those? Well, at the moment, because I'm self-employed, I'm able to say, well, I've taken time out this for last year. And lucky enough, it coincided with the pandemic, so it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> So I haven't lost that too much. But when I was working full time, I mean, the day job is could be I could be spending all day in the police station representing the client or I could be doing a trial because I've got higher rights of audience, which means that I have the same um, rights as the barrister. So I go to the Crown Court. So literally I could be spending weeks, two weeks at the Old Bailey um, doing a trial. And there's all the preparation you have to do outside of going to court and that takes up your evenings it takes up your weekends mm. and when I wrote the jigsaw man I was obviously going to court I say full time but I was also teaching as well in a law school so and I was wow. teaching yeah so I, <laughs> I was teaching criminal law um in the evening also so like twice a week I was doing that and then I was also writing the book and there was there was one point when I said I was going to court I was marking exam papers I was teaching in the evening and I was trying to get this draft done. And I have absolutely no idea how I did it. I'm surprised I didn't go mad. But the thing is, when you're committed to something, when you want to finish a project, you make sure um, that it's yeah. done. So you find those dodgy hours at lunchtime. Um, so, you know, if someone saw me in the canteen at court typing away, I may not have necessarily been typing away on a brief. I literally might, would have been working um, on the book and I remember doing that sitting in the back of court and I'm writing a chapter while I'm waiting for my um, for my case to be called on and obviously then use the weekends but I'd like the reason why I loved my job so much is I always say it's good research it's good background it's good source material mm -hmm. in terms of the clients I've represented and the cases that 
I've worked on, even in really most basic case of someone stealing a joint of lamb from Sainsbury's. You can learn so much from that in terms of clients and how defendants and how they present themselves. And then obviously I know how um, the police present the case. So all of that, I hope, brings a level of authenticity into the jigsaw man. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. When you were when you were finding those small chunks of time to write, did you sort of target yourself? Did you say, I'm going to sprint for half an hour, I'm going to hit this certain word count? Did you set yourself little goals? I tried. I've got this really mad system, which is based on um, NaNoWriMo, because you had 30 days to write 50,000 words. So I broke it down to, I think it's like 16, 1,666 is the number I have in my head. And that was always like my target number for the day if I was writing for the day because I know that's at least a chapter so I would try to use that as my guide and if I went above that that would be great but I know there's some days where you know you'd sit in front I'd sit in front of my computer and if I got 250 words out for the day then that was it that was a good day some days it's hard but as long as you write something as long as you get something down I think that's the most important thing but I'm not very good at um sprints like I'm not very good at like, I'm going to write X amount in an hour. I just have a guide mm. for the day and then yeah. just use that. Excellent stuff. Now, very exciting time. Your book's about to come out. Jigsaw Man has been optioned for TV as well. Can you tell us anything about that? Or was it all top secret? Or It's still a little bit top secret. I can tell you it's been optioned by Monumental Television. And I am talking to um, the author who's adapting the screenplay. Now, so we've had some conversations about that. But that's just where... We are at the moment, but that is exciting because that, that all happened. I think um, I got the publishing deal in March, and I think by July it'd been optioned for TV. Wow! So, wow! Yeah, <laughs> this has been a very, very crazy journey. Considering I went from self <laughs> you know, I went from self publishing, doing it myself, and I was quite content doing it myself. And I thought, well, you know, once I've written this book, if I have to self publish it myself, that's not a problem because I can do it. But yeah. they have the contrast of being traditionally published and seeing how it's a completely different engine and then obviously having the TV, the, the book option for TV. It's been mind-blowing. If I sit, yeah. Now, what's uh, what's next? Uh, are, are we going to see uh, more uh, from uh, from the world of the Jigsaw Man, Detective Inspector Angelica Henley? Henley? We're going to have more from her? You're definitely going to have more of Angelica Henley. I just um, sent book two off to my agent and my editor. So they have that now. Um, I'm giving myself a little break because obviously the book's going to be launched in lockdown. So, you know, I've got to get my front room ready for my party <laughs> of one. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'll be, um, <laughs> but then I'll be um, starting on book on book three also. So there will be Fantastic. this definitely series. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. You mentioned briefly there that you wrote for a science fiction anthology. Are we going to see a science fiction epic from you? Please, please do. I have one if you can in find mind, time. Yeah. If I can find, well, I've always got like my secret. You can't see the rest of this room, but like I've got this comic book addiction. So, like, my dream is cool. to work. I want these. I want DC Comics to like give me a call so I can write a graphic novel. But I do dabble a little bit in um, sci-fi. So, the short story I wrote for that anthology, I went to extend it. So, yeah. Brilliant, DC. If you're listening, get in touch. <laughs> Let's make this happen. Uh, and I'm here. <laughs> yeah, excellent stuff. Oh, Nadine, real, real treat to speak to you today. Best of luck with the Jigsaw Man and everything else that happens. And let's speak to you again very, very soon. I hope so. Thank you so much. <laughs> like I said, we recorded that back in February, but I'm really glad we waited because Jigsaw Man today, today in June, is Amazon's number one title in horror fiction today. So big congrats to Nadine uh, on that. She's got all sorts of amazing reviews. So, you know, launching in lockdown, but now a, a summer hit. So big congrats to Nadine there. Yeah, that's fantastic, Nadine. Well, congratulations. And I, I I loved hearing her story about the auction because like she said, it's what every writer dreams of. But I love the whole psychology of auctions. And a lot of people don't realize <laughs> what really goes on in an auction and why auctions become these kind of hotbeds of signing. But it's it's all to do with psychology. It's it's to do with what we've talked about a lot on the podcast, 
something called FOMO. For anyone who's not familiar with that term, it's fear of missing out. And I've seen it happen. Um, obviously, it happens a lot in the publishing industry. It happens a load in the music industry. You get a hot new band. One label gets whiff of them and they're like, oh, let's try and keep this quiet. We'll see if we can sign them on the lowdown. And then the next, the, and then the, the, the manager goes to the next uh, the next um, label and says, oh, by the way, you know, uh, you know, BMG have put in an offer. And then they're like, right, we're in. And then before you know it, everyone piles in. And it's it's kind of quite, a, I mean, it's the, the most powerful situation you can be in as an author because auctions obviously drive prices up and you've got the bargaining chips as the agent and the author to, to maybe get some of those extra clauses that you want in the contracts. And I mean, yes. you must have seen auctions a lot, Mark, on that you might have been on the other end of them as working in Orion. Did, how often did they happen? They, you, perhaps not as often as you think, actually. I mean, they happen a lot around about London Book Fair time because everyone, everyone wants a story. That's the other thing as well. Some of these can be great press stories. So if yeah. an editor can say, hey, we paid a lot of money for this book at the London Book Fair, but that's because we believe in it. We're a leading publisher. Look at us. We could, you know, cast a splash, that kind of thing. So there's a yeah. statement there as well from, from publishers too. But, you know, so it's... Well, it's also the beginning. It's the beginning of the marketing campaign for the book, isn't it? Yes, that's the first is. story that hits Absolutely you in, right. in some yeah. ways. And and yeah. that then creates starts the buzz, you know, maybe even a year before the book actually comes out. Um, and and that in itself, the perception of what might be a great book can actually turn it into a bestseller. The, one, the ones I remember are, and these are usually celebrity memoir ones, where the agent might not necessarily be a book agent. They might have been, you know, a, a manager or a film agent or something like that, who has a massively unrealistic idea of what publishers are willing to pay. But then publishers start think, as you say, they think, well so-and-so is paying this and maybe we need to pay more. And then what happens is the the management come to the sales department and say, um, we, we need to pay a bit more for this book. So those sales figures you gave us, do you think you could sell any more? So you start thinking, oh, can we? You know, and there are there are there are books where on paper you think we're never going to make our money back with this, you know. But then something happens, you know, you have a massive rights sale or it just catches fire or you lose a ton of money, which, you know, happens. Uh, but that tends to be at the celebrity scale of things because they like to have a couple of really big names at Christmas, celebrity memoirs, you know, that they can say, hey, look at us, aren't we great, you know. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's such a wonderful, wonderful situation to be in as, as an author. But I think it's super important to remember that where most people, especially new authors, they're desperate just to get some interest. And a lot of them, as soon as they get interest, they, they're like, oh, brilliant. And they sign. It's like, no, no, you've got one group interested. Now you go and tell all the others that you've got the interest. And that's what brings them. That's what actually gets the phone ringing. Yeah, we're so needy, aren't we? But here's the thing with Nadine. And I, I, think, uh, I think what we're seeing with Nadine, I think she's a great example of a kind of author we're going to see a lot more of in the future because she paid her dues. She did NaNoWriMo or NaNoWriMo, uh, and Robin Stevens called it that as well, and I'm not sure which one is right. Def definitely Rimo, but, but I, <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> she, she did, did NaNoWriMo, Mimo Mamo. She did self-publishing, and she used what she'd learned from that to take her career to the next level. And I think you're going to see a lot of authors doing that. They're going to they're, they're gonna sort of dip a toe in, NaNoWriMo, they're going to learn, learn how to finish a book. That's the first thing. Finish something, edit it, work on it, self-publish, realize that, you know, either self-publishing is for me or it's not. You know, some people have a real knack for it. Other people, it's like, I don't want to do this. And then yeah. I, I think you're going to see a lot of lot of people coming out of that, that generation, you know, hybrid authors who've done a little bit of everything. And because of that, she'd, you know, and as we said, she'd won competitions. She studied an MA in creative writing. Nadine's ticked every single box. She's worked really really hard to get that auction this isn't someone who's just walked in off the street and said i've got a book can she's really paid her dues so i i you know she's a she's a big inspiration and i really do hope dc comics give her a call I, i'd love to see nadine's nadine's dc comic you know so um, yeah so yeah yeah it's uh it's, she's she's really put the hours in well you're absolutely right mark i think the thing we hear a lot about, and, and Nadine said it herself, it's such a lot of work to self-publish. We know that. We've been there. Yes. Um, we hear about it on the show most weeks. Um, and, and a lot of people are like, oh, it's just such hard work, self-publishing. But 
there's a value if you think about it like what were the options that we had 20 30 years ago as, an, mm. as a new author we had to get a deal with a with a major or a traditional or a, a boutique agent but that was it so self-publishing gives us the opportunity to just do something move our career forward and i think there's a value in you know if people are kind of thinking oh, i'm just going to go for traditional and keep keep trying traditional i think there's a value in at least trying to self-publish one story mm. just to learn the process because i think it makes you a better author for traditionals because yeah. if you understand the mechanics of how this works nowadays traditional or uh, traditional um, publishers are not just looking for a great author they're looking for a great author who also kind of understands the process a bit because we, we've become more involved in, I mean, if you look at what you've done with Crow Folk, Mark, I mean, you've been completely integrated in the promotional side of it, doing, doing the book launches online and everything else. So it's almost like a team effort rather than this idea of the old school traditional, like we're the publisher, we'll do all the work. You just bring us the manuscript and, and, you know, show up for, for book signings and the like. A question we get asked a lot on the bestseller group and the Academy and something we've had in lots of Q and A's is, Oh, if I self publish, does that make me less attractive to publishers? Is there a stigma? And I don't think there is at all anymore at all i mean unless you've um i think cover good cover art helps if you've self-published a book and you've got some terrible cover art then uh, you know or even if it dies you can still take that away again you've done it and you've, you've experimented and you can take it down if you want but i think frankly they're not worried about that at least you've been through a process at least you're showing a commitment to your writing so i don't think it has that stigma at all anymore no, I think it might have done to begin with. And I think oh, what's yeah, yeah, happened yeah. is traditional, but now traditional publishers have got enough amazing success stories of the self-published author who we then signed. And I must say, then there is, you know, it used to be this idea of, you know, who are you? Are you self-published or are you going for traditional? And it was like, you know, you, you Man United, Liverpool, it's, you know, you're two different, <laughs> two different like traits. But I think nowadays, it can it can work either way. You could start, as we know, in traditional, and then go on and self-publish a book, yeah. and still carry on to traditional work as well. Or you can be self-published, and then move into traditional. Or you can do the hybrid, which is doing both, um, either at the same time. So there's there are no rules, and this is the most important thing for people to remember is that it really depends. And this is one of the themes I want us to talk about a lot more. We're starting to really talk about it in the Academy is actually understanding what kind of writer you are, mm. not what kind of writer you, th it's about acknowledging the writer you are. So for example, Shannon Mayer, um, sold over 3 million books now writes like a like crazy demon when she, she writes the books, but she actually really, she kind of, has a thing for the marketing she likes mm. i wouldn't say maybe it's a love-hate relationship but but she's good at it mm. and she splits a day morning morning writing afternoon marketing and she'll probably always do that because she's really really good at it and she she's got that fire in her belly some people just can't stand the marketing um and if that's the case don't be put off by going self-published because maybe you have to go through and break through that that barrier but your goal is ultimately to say, because I want to get a traditional deal. I want to go with a traditional publisher long-term, but I'm going to do this just to kind of learn the process. And then I'm going to like establish some of my career and then I'm going to push for traditional. So um, there's always value in trying these things out and know that it doesn't necessarily have to be forever, which I think a lot of people really get down on that idea. And of course, we've discovered with some authors, you don't have to do any marketing. Like Philip C. Quaintrell, the fantasy author, he spends all his money using the same cover artist as Brandon Sanderson. And that's it. He pops it online and everyone goes, what the hell is that? And they buy it. <laughs> so, uh, and congrats to Philip. Yeah. He's just finished his, the latest series of his books. And, you know, when he came on the podcast and was, I mean, he earns, he was something like a thousand pounds a day. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, it's yeah. astonishing the money he's making and he's not doing any marketing. So folks, just all we're saying is if you, if this is your first time on the bestseller experiment, start with episode one, work your way through because this is it. It's a, it's a, it's a rainbow. It's a spectrum. There's no one way of doing this. There's no, don't let anyone tell you that there is apart from finish the damn book, get the book out there. Yeah. Yeah, there's some definite the principles to follow. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the other things I loved about um, what Nadine said about, I mean, we talk about her incredibly busy schedule. I mean, what, let's, let's just recap. She she was sitting waiting to do a court case. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I can just see her sitting outside on one of those like, you know, rickety old seats, yeah. writing a chapter of her book, mm. which is phenomenal because, and I've heard this a lot. I've heard about people, I guess it's called snatching time. It's like, it's not like you can sit down and say, today I'm going to write between 6 a.m. and 12. I'll take a, uh, an hour for lunch. And then it's like, no, I've got 15 minutes in the school car park. Kids haven't got out yet. Right, let's do the 200 words or in the Dean's case. And I've heard a lot of people who just are able to write a book by fitting, by, by squeezing it around their life rather than making writing central to their life. And the thing I love about the Dean's story, and we hear it's, this just happens too often to, to ignore, is that eventually she has enough success with her book that it will eventually kind of she'll have the option like do i actually want to become a full-time writer mm. like i've got a tv series option now she's yeah. got this you know auction that's happened she now has an option but she would never have had the option if she hadn't written around her schedule yeah and you know i, I remember the gingerbread episode that we did which is uh the charity for single parents and there was a writing competition there and mm. they you know single parents as you know mr d face all kinds of challenges when it comes to, to writing but they were you know there are people writing on their phone on the bus into work. And again, grabbing 15, 20 minutes here, there and wherever. And I think if you are passionate about it, you find that time, you want to tell that story. And if you've got, you know, if you've got that drive, it can be done. And again, I'm not going to pretend it's easy. These are exceptional people, but that can be you folks. If you're thinking, I, you know, I just need to, there is a misconception. I think that you need to take, I'm going to take the summer to write the great American novel. I'm going to, you know, and I think, first of all, saying anything like that puts such a weight of expectation on you. I would rather you say, mm. I'm a writer. Oh, what are you writing? Well, I write every day. If you write every day, you're pretty much in the same way that a musician who practices the scales every day, in the way that an athlete who trains every day, that's that's how you become good at, you know, it's a 10,000 yeah. hours thing. That's how you get in fact, good at this stuff. Here's, a, here's an interesting thought. Are you more of a writer if you write 200 words a day every day of the year than if you write a, a, a novel once once in one month in the year? Oh, there's a can of worms. That is a can right. of worms. Pass Mr. D, the can opener, <laughs> for the biggest jar of worms you've ever seen. I, I, it's, that's interesting because I obviously people do both, and both are completely legitimate. I know a yeah. lot of... Um, professional published traditionally published authors who do that thing and they will go away and write i think it's because we see it on tv and film when it's always like in um four weddings and uh, no not four weddings what's the uh, what's the terrible one love actually a uh, terrible film where love colin actually. firth he goes to away somewhere and he's typing with paper for some reason because even that's set in the modern day he's writing like a you know he's, he's got reams of paper flying everywhere and the idea is oh you go somewhere on holiday to write or stephen king misery where you know he 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 goes you know finishes in the hotel uh, remote location but that romanticizes the, the writing process whereas actually it's a lot more quotidian it's a lot more every day you know you come in you do your bit and then you get on with your life you know, so my day is normally 7.30 to 9.30, I'm writing on project number one. And then throughout the day, I find places to, to work on other projects. But when I was, when I had a day job, it was my commute into work, half an hour on the train, an hour lunch break, commute home. Two hours a day. I was very, very lucky to get that. When I worked for a, when I was a sales rep for a publisher, it was my lunchtime lay-by. I'd park in a lay-by and write in a lay-by while scarfing down my lunch. That was how... I got plays and scripts written as well. So, you know, it's, um, you just got to figure out yeah, where that little bit of day is that you can, that you can use. It's fascinating, isn't it? I'm going to throw this open to debate. I love, I love a good debate, Mark, but I want everyone <laughs> to get involved. Let's talk about this on Twitter, on Facebook, BXP team in the Academy. Let's talk about, um, because here's, I'm going to, this is my, this is my opening gambit for the debate. If you worked out in a gym for 30 days, you would get incredible strength. You might also injure your back because you might overdo yes. it, right? <laughs> but who would be stronger by the end of the year if you did, say, 20 press-ups a day every single day of the year or you worked out like a demon for one month? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I've got my own views on it, but we'll have a discussion about that later. Maybe we should do a whole episode on this because I think it's a very interesting 
you know, which, which one helps you more as a writer in the long run? Because there's pros and cons to both. Absolutely. But um, yeah, there's a lot of NaNoWriMo fans out there right now who says, well, that's the only time that I yeah. write in the year yeah. because I, it's, it gives me that impetus and it's worked for me. And I think that's brilliant. What, what, um, I, do, what I don't want to do is, is delegitimize, if that's a word, any one person's work. If that works for you, exactly. sweet. Perfect. It's almost like it's almost like choose your own adventure, isn't it? It's, it's, exactly. You've got, and you in some ways have to try both to work out which works for you. You know what would be the best thing? A book a month, every month. That would be that's the Shannon Mayer way of doing things, yeah. and that yeah. way you'd have like probably a hundred books within ten years at least. Yeah, well, so, I, I, as I've said before, I don't think Shannon Mayer is actually human. I'm pretty sure she's from no, an alien race that has she's come from to that the Earth. Urban fantasy to world. Show us how it's about. done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you if you wonder who we're talking about here, anything? Who's Shannon Mayer? Episode four, I believe, Mark, I and so, yeah. we've got two more episodes in the first season brilliantly inspiring she's fantastic lady. go listen absolutely brilliant um the other thing i love that nadine did is she printed a physical copy of a book yeah it's something we always talk about there is something i still i still will always say this i love digital i mean hey i i live in the digital world look at us right now on zoom but there's something magical about the physical the, the tactileness of a book yeah. you can't re ever replace that as much as you love ebooks and as much as you love your Kindle, as an author, there is nothing quite like that moment where you hold that book in your hand, even if it's just the proof copy or the draft copy that you've run off Amazon or Create Space, you know, or whatever it's called now. What is it now? K yeah, KDP. I can't, KDP. I, can't I don't know. They up. keep changing. But, <laughs> but isn't that isn't that an important? Uh, that's a very important milestone in becoming or believing that. I'm now a writer. Is holding that book, right? It's possibly. I mean, the thing is, it's um, you're seeing a lot more authors going digital first, and not every one of them. Even you know, they're going with um, uh, Canelo or one of those one of those digital first. And a lot of publishers now have digital first imprints, so they're not always getting a physical copy of the book, even though you're you know published, uh, and they can be earning a very good living doing that. So, uh, but it is there is something extra about that. Uh, it's it's fascinating. I was reading today that uh, I think it's in the states. I mean, over here in the UK, indie bookshops have done really, really well. Uh, those that have survived lockdown and what have you, and those and they're thriving. And some, something similar is happening in the states because that you know one borders, you know Barnes and Noble. Those are all, all those big chains are gone from the states. So indie bookshops are now the only books bookstores you will find selling you know selling physical books on on the american equivalent of the high street the strip mall whatever it is yeah. um and there is the the report goes on about the limited appeal of kindle so not everyone people do like a physical book yeah you know and it's interesting having done the um miss charlotte quartet which i said as i said is twenty five thousand words and there's a part of me thinking i wonder if anyone would pay for a physical copy of that you know, so I, it's, it's got little cogs Worth whirring in my head. Worth an experiment. Worth an experiment, Mr. Stay, yeah. I do believe. I might have to run it past my publisher because I think anything set in that world, they get first dibs. So Yeah, uh, that's also, true. Yeah. Well, yeah. then that might be a great conversation to have with them as well because they might mm. say, well, let us take yeah. it. Yeah, but Job you're done. right. You're right. Having something physical does make a difference. Yeah, I kind of, why that I really meant like as an author, even if you just literally are printing yourself your yeah. own copy just to have on your shelf or to use as a proofread, mm. um, there's something about that physicalness. One other thing about the North American market, which is interesting, in Canada, uh, actually, weirdly enough, where I live, I'll, we've got two independent bookstores. One of them's just been taken over by another family. So they're, mm. they're all about community. And it's, it's, they're lovely shops. You can go in and, uh, you know, they, they, they're very supportive of local authors as well, which I love. Um, but what I've also found is in, in Canada, we've still got one of what we call the big box um, publisher and it's called chapters it's kind of like the equivalent of barnes and noble but what i've noticed and i do love chapters um but what i've noticed is when i go into chapters now the first half of the bookstore in quotes is haberdasheries 
you've got oh. your Starbucks on the left and you've got all your kind of comfy pillows and you've got reading socks. You can buy your reading socks mm. um, and, and board games and yeah. chocolates, funny enough, and artsy stuff. And then the second half of the store, this is a big store. The second half of the store is all the books. And it kind of reminds me a bit of a, what happened to HMV. Because yeah. HMV was the, it was records and vinyl and tapes and CDs back in our day, back in our day. Um, but then it started to become like computer games in the far corner and then posters and then those funny little bobbly head. Um, yeah, and it was all these kind of, yeah. yeah, like like um, memorabilia of, of, of films. And it just became this, almost like this kind of, we need to start selling other stuff in order to survive. And I think, I really hope that these, all these stores can survive in some ways because it is obviously very hard competing with Jess. It's usually a question um, of profit margin because the profit yeah. margin on books, especially if you, if you are competing on price, isn't great. And obviously, you know, a bookshop, especially a big one, if it's on like two floors or whatever, the number of individual stock lines, all those books, they're on individual stock line, is as big as a supermarket that's twice the size of that bookshop. You know, it's um, in terms of square footage and turnover, it's not a great equation. So they, you know, they if they're selling cards, they're making a massive markup on the cards. Those bobbleheads, the markup is pretty good. Certainly in HMV, it was headphones, I think, where they made a lot of money because the markup right. on headphones, you know, those uh, big brand headphones devices, that you see yeah. that, are, you know, they're, they cost like $5 to make and you're, you're buying them for $8 or whatever. It's like sunglasses as well. I remember someone telling me, if you ever want to, want to get rich, sell sunglasses because they're, you know, massive, massively marked. <laughs> I digress. But so, yeah, they are, Waterstones are the same here. You go, it's, um, it's a bit more of a mix. So Waterstones are all about books, front of stores, books, books, books. But by the counter, you've got, because we're coming to Father's Day in the UK, so you've got little gifts there for dad or whatever, and then board games and then cuddly toys in the kids section and stuff like that so it is it is a mix now but yeah that's what they got to do to survive i i so hope that we don't enter a world where bookshops don't exist in a physical space it would just it would break my heart Absolutely i think break my heart i think they do but they're the indies are specializing and uh they're finding readers online as well so you know um Cole's Books, who did signed editions of of uh, the Crowfoot, they have a thing about signed books, you know. They are and they deliver them and beautifully wrapped with a bookmark and a ribbon and all kinds of stuff, you know. So they're they're finding little niches. They're, they're basically saying, let's not compete with Amazon. Let's do what Amazon cannot do, and they're doing right. it really, really and you well. Find, here's here's a little idea I want to throw out to the the world of of authors. Is there a best selling author out there that would be willing to write a new book and only market it in independent bookstores so the only place you can buy this book you can't you can't get it on you know digital you have to go to your local bookstore to get it that would be a very interesting i mean not that a major publisher would probably do that because it wouldn't make sense to them but if there was a best-selling author that was maybe had gone say self-published and they did an experiment to see just how many physical copies of their book could they sell. Um, and I mean, I'm sure it would cause a major issue in terms of putting things on Amazon. <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm, trying to think it, I'm, I'm trying to think if anyone's done it. It's ringing a mm. vague bell. I'm trying to think. I've I mean, never heard, you, you I can't do, think you, of a, a major one that's happened. That, you that, get that, exclusive that editions. Like. So if you go oh, okay. to, um, you know, Waterstones, certainly again around Christmas time, they'll have exclusive editions. So there'll be coloured end papers or there'll be an extra short story or it might be a signed copy. It's a little more difficult with the indies because they're not represented by one single body who can negotiate on their behalf. The wholesalers sometimes do stuff like that, but indies are indies, and it's trying to get them to agree on one thing is like wrangling cats, you know. It's uh, and they all yeah. want different things, which is fine. Some sell children's books, some sell crime books, some prefer to focus on literary fiction or whatever or genre fiction. So mm. they're never all going to band together in in that way, but. Um, I'm trying to think if someone has done it. But Amazon might kick up a fuss because they like to have a bit of everything. They like to be able to offer, because it's A to Z, that's their logo. You know, it goes from A to Z on the logo. And they like to be able to offer everything. So they don't like being left out at all. 
Yeah, of course. And and uh, I'm actually reading um, a couple of the Amazon books written about Jeff Bezos. Uh, one of them's called uh, The Everything Store. Yes. And the other one's called Bezonomics. And they're fascinating. Mm. Absolutely brilliant read. Yeah. I mean, yeah. goodness me. But, you know, one thing I did pick up on that, just as a very quick aside, um, both Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, avid, avid readers as children. Avid readers. Like Jeff Bezos used to read, I think, uh, 12 books in a month or something. And I just, there's got to be science out there that have shown well, like, like. So, so did I, but I'm skin. <laughs> <laughs> Relatively speaking. <laughs> but, but what has it done to your brain? You see, this is the thing. What has it done to your creativity? How do books, mm. how do books nurture young minds? I mean, yeah. it's quite mind blowing. I'm, I'm, I know that there's a link, absolute link there between, um, the amount that we read and how how we see the world and, and how yeah. it opens up our, yeah, no our creativity it's wonderful so thank you to all the authors who are writing books for all those kids to read i mean there's another reason to do your 200 words a day there's some child out there who's going to read your words that you write today in maybe you know a year from now or six months from now or who knows 10 20 50 100 500 years from now and it will inspire them to see the world differently it will expand their mind and My- Really, folks, when we sit down to write, that's what we're doing. Yeah. One of my favorite moments as an author was at Herm Bay Sci-Fi by the Sea a couple of years ago. And I had copies of my books and I'm signing away. And this kid comes over. He's about 11 years old. And he sees the novelization of Robot Overlords. And he went, oh, did you write that? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, that's my second favorite film. (laughs) I thought, I'll have that. Uh, and I signed it for him and I, I, I gave him, you know, so uh, that made my day. That made my day. I know. Well, it does, it, yeah. your, book, your book will be someone's favourite book. That's the thing. you know. It will be. Thing. And yeah. you're also paying it forward, Mark, from all of those incredible authors you enjoyed as a yeah. child as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And it's yeah, a part of the beautiful cycle of life and writing. So, Mark, we could chat about this all day, but we should probably jump into social media because there's been a, a bit of a bit of an interesting debate going on about previous which is what always happens when someone takes a stream of you and i love that (laughs) (laughs) well this is the dean wesley smith episode and for the record i love dean wesley smith but he's he's he did warn me he said i'm I'm gonna i I might ruffle some feathers but first of all we had some great feedback from people who've who've, so we got uh, just to give you some context dean talks about writing in the dark writing just just sitting down and writing anything not not stopping getting to the end but more importantly he doesn't use an editor he doesn't listen to that critical voice he just writes and puts it out there writes and puts it out there uh and we talked about Heinlein's rules just go back and listen to that episode because it's an absolute brilliant brilliant um story and interview and we we said to people look if if you are one of Dean's, you know, if you write like Dean, let us know because we've not really heard from any any listeners who have. So uh, Harvey Stamber got in touch and said, uh, he said, I found uh, a Dean's rules and Heinlein's rules about writing into the dark in early 2014. I trusted myself and gave writing into the dark an honest try. Since then, I've written over 60 novels, six zero, nine novels this year alone so far. And we're halfway through the year. Uh, well over 200 short stories. My novels and stories sell well. And for me, writing is the most fun I can have on my clothes on. There's nothing hard or dramatic about being a writer. It's simply great fun. And if, if I hadn't found Dean, and learn to trust my creative voice i still wouldn't be a writer at all so thank you for that harvey thank you so much we also had a note from claire who wrote to us she said wow a big fan of dean's views on writing and honestly he's just legitimized how i write i don't always know what the story is about although sometimes i have an idea of the overarching story but it doesn't always follow that as i write i also let the characters lead the way i never have a genre in mind when i begin a story and that's something dean was very keen on i write whatever Whatever story wants to be told, whatever's in my head as I begin, nor do I know if it will be a novel, novella or short story. So that's amazing. So that's great to hear from Claire and Harvey there. We also have people, you know, saying, you know, lots of love for editors and publishers out there. And I love my editors. I couldn't do without them. So, um, you know, Julian Barr says, interesting, but I feel for the amazing editors he has worked with over the years. And to be fair, you know, Dean has had the benefit of input from publishers and editors, editors over there to get to, you know, help get him where he is. Um, you know, uh, Fadzi Kazambira says, for the rest of us, an editor is essential, as is frequent revision of our first draft. Jan Carr, I love this. Jan says, I wanted to tell him to fuck the fuck off more than once during the interview. <laughs> so, you know, didn't land with everyone. 
Uh, but she thought it was a great interview, interesting perspective. Uh, uh, so, yeah, lots and lots and lots of uh, views on this. Dean uh, Joe Ruiz, who's uh, on the Academy as well, he said, excellent interview. I've heard his approach in other interviews, but the questions were spot on and focused. Some people love his approach, others don't. But my takeaway was enjoying the process rather than focusing on the end product. I think Joe nails it on the head there. So Absolutely, thank you all yeah. for your... That's just the tip of a rather <laughs> large titanic size iceberg of the the correspondence we had on that but um it's always amazing just to you know it it was brilliant we also have had a great response just people piling on praise for the the interview that came out last week with sarah moorhead and stuart turton uh people sharing their inspirational uh teachers uh with us as well which has been just heartwarming to to hear teachers just amazing inspiring lots of authors all over the place that's been great so thank you to everyone who's got in touch with that as well Excellent. And if there's anything in this episode that's piqued your interest, made you think of something differently or you completely disagree with, let us know, because mm. this is what it's all about. This is I, I, I think this is this is one of the new catchphrases of the of definitely of the Academy and, and, and certainly for the podcast. It's choose your own adventure, folks. Yeah. My favorite books growing up, you know, what I read as a kid, Mark, I read all the fighting fancy choose your own adventure books. Yeah, that's what yeah, got yeah. me into loved books. Them. I loved them. Yeah. So but this is what it's about, folks. It's about choosing your own adventure. Um, you know, being bold enough to go on that adventure, but knowing that there are more than one ways to do it and you're a unique individual writer and it's for you to discover, but you only discover by trying things out. You'll never know if you don't try, right? So, Absolutely. so get out there, get adventurous, um, walk right into the dark, whatever you choose to do. Um, and if you are interested in getting supported in your journey, the Academy is here to help you. It's an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal journey for all of the authors that we've had with us so far. The feedback's been amazing. Um, 93% satisfaction rate uh, of all the people in there. It's, it's, we've created something which supports you at every, every level of your writing, whether it's coaching, the courses, accountability uh, and the inspiration of the community who are all there to help you can now get beta readers if you're looking for beta readers in it it's just there's so much more but if you want to find out more about what the academy is about and if you want to get join us in the next intake which is the, starts at the beginning of july this year um, we're going to have a webinar on the 21st of june monday the 21st of june so if you can join us for that come and register for that at academy.bestsellerexperiment.com so, Mr. Stay, uh, people need to get in contact us. The best ways are... Yeah, come and find us on bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. Or we're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, Twitter and Instagram, at bestsellerxp. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends, tell your friends, sing it from the rooftops, shout it far and wide. Uh, or subscribe, rate and review on your podcatcher. Thanks, as always, to JD and Dave, our editors. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. And it's a lovely, lovely summer's day here today, Mark. Looking forward to hopefully getting outside a bit and enjoying a bit of this lovely sunshine as well. And I hope you have a good um, week in the UK. So it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.